I've been trying furiously to uh, take away the stigma for mental illness and this this whole thing about being ashamed because you've got a personality disorder or even a psychosis or whatever is just terrible because it keeps people from getting the help they need. Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to another episode of the Chris Cuomo Project Podcast. Dr. Phil, I know, big star, great to have him on the show, but it's not just the stardust. 20 years plus he's been on top, but consistently doing the same thing, pounding on the table about mental health, making it more acceptable, and helping people see their problems not just as a negative, but as a way through it. I think that's fundamental to us right now. And it's always been interesting to me that his kind of ascendance in TV was going on at the same time that I was like, you know, grinding it through here. I'm no Dr. Phil, any way you want to measure it. But uh, it's been interesting to watch him because he's done so well for so long, but by being consistent and doing something that I think now we need more than ever. So I wanted to talk to Dr. Phil about what's changed, why are we such a rage factory, and what can we do about it? And it turned out to be a really, really interesting conversation. So please, subscribe, follow, love having you here. And now here is a big serving of the man himself, Dr. Phil. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Done With Debt. Let me tell you, we're all dealing with it, especially in American culture, right? Because we're so credit sensitive. We have so much available credit. People take advantage of it. Often it takes advantage of them. High interest credit cards are real. Loans make it nearly impossible to pay off your debt. Inflation keeps just taking away what you can pay, keeps you stuck in almost a paycheck to paycheck existence. Done with debt can be a lifeline. Done with debt has this ingenious new system that gives you a way to deal with debt faster and easier than you probably thought possible. See, Done With Debt analyzes all the debt options that you qualify for. They know how to reduce bills, cut interest rates. They have a skilled staff of negotiators that know how to get debt out of your life, ready? Permanently. Done With Debt has a bunch of experts. They've been doing this and they know the best strategies to reduce and remove debt from your life. But you gotta hurry because some debt solutions are time sensitive. Here's how easy they'll make it. If you go to donewithdebt.com, that's donewithdebt.com, right? D-O-N-E-W-I-T-H-D-E-B-T.com, you can find the answers to your debt problems. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Cozy Earth. Let me tell you, bedding matters. And this isn't just me telling you this. In a recent survey, seven out of 10 parents said that they get an average of three hours of sleep a night in the baby's first year. Hello, Greg. Now, mommies need quality sleep and bedding will matter. There are other variables, but here's one that you can control, okay? When we made the switch to Cozy Earth, I noticed the difference. I did not know 
that fabric or textiles could really be temperature sensitive, meaning if it's cold, they keep you warm. If it's warm, they can kind of cool you off. I did not know that. I know it now because I have cozy earth, okay? So this Mother's Day, why don't you treat the mamas in your life to the luxury they deserve with cozy earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health? Doesn't she deserve it? Mm-hmm. Don't forget, use my promo code CHRIS at checkout and you get 35% off at CozyEarth.com, okay? When you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the dropdown and that will make me very happy. Dr. Phil, what a pleasure. Thank you for being on the Chris Cuomo Project. Well, it's, it's my honor. I'm a fan of yours and have been for a long time, so I'm, uh, I'm proud to be asked. So you have the true accolade of longevity, of watching this culture develop, being at the top of the ratings, daytime TV, giving advice, going through people's hardships. 20 years ago versus now, how do you compare the kind of cultural status quo then and now? Well, Chris, I, I think it's changed a lot. You know, of course, it, it would be insane to think that things had not evolved across 20 years. And you know, when you think back, I, I did my first show uh, on my own. I, I started on Oprah 26 years ago. We're in season 21 right now. But even back in 02, when I started my first uh, broadcast here, text wasn't a thing. There were no social media platforms. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. None of those things existed. And I, I focus on that because, you know, people get their information so differently now than they did back then. And there was no cyber bullying. And, you know, I've, I've had to deal with that now with, uh, you know, kids used to get bullied at school. It would be in the cafeteria or on the bus docks or something, and they could go home and escape it. Now it follows them everywhere. And now kids can put a picture up on the Internet, and it's there forever. They, they can make one mistake in just the blink of an eye that can ruin them professionally and socially. And I've had, you know, kids that are bullied to death and uh, we, we see now these kids that get on social media and it correlates with depression and anxiety and loneliness. Uh, and, I, you know, I think in probably 2008, 2009, uh, with the proliferation of the smartphone, we saw a quantum shift in social development and a whole generation that, you know, kind of stopped living their lives and started watching people live their lives on the internet. And so we have a generation that, you know, when I was growing up, when, when you turned 16 at 8 a.m., you were over getting your driver's license, you know, and now they're getting their driver's license later. Uh, they start dating later. Just everything is, is kind of slowed down because they're so involved in the virtual world instead of the actual world. I don't think that's a good thing. Well, I guess that's the crux of the question is, uh, you said it would be crazy if things hadn't evolved. I don't know that it's evolved. I think there's more. I think there's new and different in terms of the amount of saturation of information and access, but I don't know that it's ev evolution. I don't know that it's not devolution. I don't know that it's not breaking our character down 
and our culture down because people seem to me, looking at my kids, we're doing the best we can. They're, they're blessed with a good mom and a struggling dad who's at least trying, but they don't seem as good person to person as even in my awkwardest, uh, most awkward days. The ability to talk and hang around and be with other people and do things. I don't even know that. I think I had to teach them how to play without the device. Well, there's no question about the fact that when we think about social development, and I'll use the word competition, and I don't mean that just in terms of athletics, but when you get out into the world and you're competing for your space in the world, uh, in the hallway at school or at a table in the lunchroom or a place on a team or whatever, that is clearly eroding. Social skills, the ability to engage, the ability to be rejected and overcome it, those things are clearly being compromised. And and, and you, you take that and mix that in with a tendency, I think now, that I think parents are coddling their kids way too much. And I think our universities today are coddling the students way too much. And I think the way kids learn about themselves, the way they, they form their self-image, the way they form their self-esteem is the same way we form opinions of other people, which is we watch what they do, we watch it across time, and based on their patterns of behavior, we attribute certain traits and characteristics to them. Like if you have somebody that shows up at the office every day and they're there early, they unlock the door, they get the coffee going, they get the lights on, and they never miss. Rain or sign, you attribute dependability, reliability to them. It's the same way kids learn who they are. They watch themselves master their environment, overcome obstacles, solve problems. And now they don't get a chance to see themselves do that as much because you've got parents that are smoothing those bumps out in the road for them, they're not out there negotiating with professors and things like that the way they were. They're living a virtual life and confusing likes and clicks with real relationships. They're not developing those skills, so they're not attributing to themselves. And that's why that generation is higher in depression than even people 65, 75 and older. They're more lonely and depressed and anxious than anyone else. Now, the pushback to that is, no, we just say they are now. We give everything an acronym. Uh, a kid doesn't have ants in his pants anymore. He's got ADD. And if someone's sad, now they're depressed and they've got to be on medication and everybody's got a diagnosis. And it's part of the snowflake softening of America. Do you believe we're just getting... Um, more savvy to mental health struggles, or do you think we're making them up? Well, I think ADD and ADHD are wastebasket diagnoses that are so overused, it's ridiculous. We used to call those spoiled kids. Now we call them ADD, ADHD, and we throw Ritalin or some other cortical stimulant at them, which is like, by the way, throwing gas on the fire. If you don't have an underactive neocortex and you throw a stimulant at it, you're going to send that kid up the wall. Uh, I think it's a terrible misuse of medication and a way overdiagnosed uh, disorder that's usually made by a GP instead of someone that is actually qualified to make the diagnosis and does a DNA test and does a brain scan. 
So I do think that's overused, but I do think we are seeing more depression now. And it didn't start with the pandemic, by the way. That did spike it. But we actually started seeing it in 08 and 09. And we see it on psychological tests, but we also see it behaviorally with lower psychomotor activity, uh, less attention, less endurance and follow-up on activities, poor concentration. So there is clear evidence that they are more, in fact, depressed. Do you believe that we're moving in the right direction in terms of allowing people to be open about not just uh, one type of health struggle, but any type of health struggle that it's, is, you know, you can come in limping into work because you got arthritis in your knee or, and nobody's going to really care about that. Uh, you think we're moving in the right direction in terms of saying that you're struggling with something that is emotional or psychological and the ability to get access to help? I think taking the stigma away from uh, mental illness uh, is the best thing in the world we can do. I, I think there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with it. People can give you damn good reasons for that. For example, if, if you have someone in law enforcement or firefighters or whatever, and they say, hey, I, I need to go to a employee assistance program and get some counseling, and they're on track to become a lieutenant or a captain and move up in the ranks, I, I guarantee you it will slow them down if it gets out. So that's a justified stigma. But I really hope that I've been trying furiously to take away the stigma for mental illness and this this whole thing about being ashamed because you've got a personality disorder or even a psychosis or whatever is just terrible because it keeps people from getting the help they need. We have so much better evidence-based therapies for these things now and proper use of certain medications. I'm not a big pill pusher. I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, so I don't uh, prescribe pills. I'm trained in psychology, not psychiatry. So, um, But I, I do think we have a lot better treatment technology now than we did before. And these things can be managed. They can be handled and people can have very productive lives. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen it in my own life, but I've also seen it in lives around me and now it's kind of come full circle where I had people, when I started talking about how, I'll tell you, it was hard not losing my job. I knew I'd get another job. I knew I was good at what I do. Um, but it was like kind of processing emotionally, like, you know, what did this mean? And what did it mean about what I do and, you know, how I feel about it? I had people who care about me saying, hey, man, you got to be careful with talking about how you sh what you're struggling with or whatnot, because people are going to think that you're crazy. And then they're not like going to trust you anymore because they're going to think you lost it. And it was really interesting. They weren't wrong. And I totally understood why they were saying that. I had just reached a point where I completely rejected the bias. The, the bias to me is, is the problem, not what they're biased against. And I've seen too many people... Um, have horrible outcomes because of shame when it was never necessary. And I've always felt it was one of the reasons that I felt good about your success. Watching you, you know, my TV career has kind of matched uh, yours in terms of timeline. And I was always happy to see that you were doing as well as you were, not just because of whatever flavor of the moment box was being checked in daytime TV, but that you were helping with people that are real 
real problems that go to real family struggles, real couple struggles that are very relatable. Even if people don't want to admit it in themselves, they can watch it in the people on your set. And I always felt good about that, that I know this is real. All these paternity tests and all this bullshit that's going on in these other TV shows. I mean, that's true, but there's an extremism to them. And I've always felt that your show was bringing people the reality that they probably knew themselves. I was thinking back just the other day when we had our 20th anniversary and I was talking to Oprah and she said, do you remember when we started this whole thing? And Roger King, I don't know if you ever knew Roger. He was the king of syndication. And of course he's passed on now. But I remember when we were doing the first pitch reel for the show, the first question he asked me, he says, all right, what are you, what are you going to talk about on your show? What are you going to do? And I remember saying two things. I said, I'm going to talk about things that matter to people who care. And then I, I said, we're going to talk about the silent epidemics in America, the things that you just don't talk about in polite society. And that's almost everything that has to do. I was telling Oprah, I think I'm fortunate in that I think everything I've ever done in my life has prepared me for what I'm now doing, which wouldn't be true if I'd spent five years selling shrimp out of a van down by the river, <laughs> but that, that hasn't been the case. You know, my, my dad was a terrible alcoholic, and my wife's father was a, was a really bad alcoholic. And so when I talk to people that had parents that had a chaotic, violent household, it's like, yeah, I get that. I, I've been there. And we were so terribly poor that, you know, everybody had to work and people said you get an allowance. What do you mean allowance? You worked and came home and put the money on the table because that's what you had to do. And I'm not crying about it. You don't know you have a bad deal at the time. Just everybody works and you do what you can and you get through it and it's fine. But I, I understand I'll say things. Sometimes people say, yeah, it's easy for you to say you're Dr. Phil. Yeah, well, I wasn't always. And I know what it's like to have to make a choice, are you going to pay the rent or the light bill, you know? And so when I bring these people on, I feel like I'm able to relate to wherever they are because I've been there. And I think that's important when people think you do, you truly get what they're saying. Oh, absolutely. I also think, please don't let the zeitgeist of the moment confuse your intuition about the need for an example of better. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from AG1. Listen, my brothers and sisters, you know that I take my health seriously, right? I'm an aging athlete. I'm dealing with long COVID. That's why AG1 is a big part of my game, and I have been taking it for many years. Why? Because it's one and done. I don't have to worry about the combinations. I don't have to worry about the price the same way. It's so much less expensive than taking all these things separately. And... It's the deliverability. It's just a scoop and a glass of warm water for me, but you can put a scoop of it in whatever you want. And boop, down the hatch, and that's that. People ask me all the time, AG1, do you really take it? Yeah, it's all over my house. And I've been drinking it for a long time, and I think it works. I have partnered with AG1 for so long because they make a high-quality product that I trust to have as part of my routine every day. So, you want to replace whatever you're doing now? Start AG1. 
try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription at drinkag1.com slash ccp. That's drinkag1.com slash ccp. Check it out. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Prize Picks. Prize Picks, man, if you like DFS, this is the way to go. America's number one fantasy sports app. Three million members. Why? Easy, exciting, plenty of action. Makes watching the sports, makes watching the players more fun. You just pick more or less on two or more player stats. And if you're any good, winnings roll in. And now you can win up to 100 times your money on prize picks with as little as four correct picks. You can turn 100 into 10,000. You can turn 10 bucks into 1,000. Basketball, hockey, college, you know, all the different entries today on Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app. You ready to get started with Prize Picks? Download the app today. Use code CCP. You'll get a first deposit match up to 100 bucks. Again, download the app today. Use the code CCP. You get a first deposit match up to 100 bucks. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. You know, it's one thing for you to say to people, I've been where you are. I think it's more empowering for people in terms of my experience of your program that people see you as an example of where they can get. You know, that was always yeah. a big as aspect of the American dream. You know, my father, may rest in peace, really used to like that people would say to him, wow, look at you. And he would literally, I would see it in his face. He'd go, right? A generation ago, my father was digging graves. Look at me. I'm governor of this amazing state. You know, here I am. I'm a doctor. I, I'm a, you know, I'm a doctor of laws. He always would say, I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor of laws. Um, you know, here I am. I'm a lawyer. I'm educated. My father never made it past fourth grade. Uh, my mother never really spoke English. And look at me. You know, he used to love that example of what the American dream can do, that you can you can start where Phil McGraw did, and you can then be a Dr. Phil. Right now, people are beating on that, and I think that's part of our collective problem, is we're attacking the good all the time. Nothing can be good. Everything has to come down. I don't know if you've seen these commercials that are on the football games, he gets us, and it's about Jesus, and it says Jesus, and then it highlights the us, and he gets us, and he has, like, people fighting at home, and it says, you know, Jesus knew what it was like to fight with people in his house, but he didn't disown them forever. You know, it's a message like that. So I see yeah. these ads, and a couple of my buddies say to me, hey, did you see that ad on the game? Not particularly religious guys, but good guys. You see the ad? I like that ad. I like that. I heard it like three, four times. And that's always an indicator to me that you should be paying attention to this. And I had felt the same way. The first time I pitched the piece and I say, hey, we should look into these ads. It's kind of cool. I thought, find out who's doing them and let me talk to them. Oh, no, that's not what I got, Phil. What I got was five different avenues of who this group is, who are their donors, where's this money coming from, and what kind of proselytizing is this, and what's this guy really about? It was all attack angles on the ads. And I was like, no, no, no. I just want to have a guy on and ask him why they're putting all this money into this message. Um, we like to tear things down. And I wonder what you think the net effect of that is on our kind of cultural psyche. I think it's amazing that you've observed that because I, I think there's a real attack on the meritocracy 
in the United States, and I think we're going to make a real bad mistake if we let that carry through. And it boils back, you can go all the way back to biblical times, and I, I think what well, two or three different commandments have to do with envy. And I, I really think it has a lot to do with envy. And look, people who say, I, I want equality of outcome, just doesn't make sense to me. If you want to work towards equality of opportunity, I'm with you, man. I'm right there. I think we can try and level that playing field, but you're not ever going to get a quality of outcome. I can't add two and two and get five every time. And if you put me in a situation where that's required, I'm going to be at the back of the line. Now, if you start talking about qualitative, where it's about reading and retention and expression, I'm going to be at the front of the line. Everybody has different skill sets and everybody has different uh, levels of ability and there are people that don't have the the springboard that everybody else has. We can work on leveling that, but you can't work on a quality of outcome. You've got to try and level a quality of opportunity. We're seeing stories in the media right now about schools that didn't let kids know they had a national merit scholarship that they could use because they didn't want them to have an advantage over classmates about getting in college. Are you kidding me? That's not the way to level the playing field. If it's that there are kids in that school that didn't get that recognition, and it's because they didn't have the springboard those other kids did, then help them with a better springboard. But don't take that away from the kids that earned it. And if I go get brain surgery, I don't want to get it from the next guy up. I want to get it from the best person available at that time if they're operating on my child or someone like that. I don't want some woke agenda in there saying, well, this is it's a level playing field. No, I want the best available man or woman. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what country they're from. I want the most skilled professional to do the job when it comes to something that matters. And it's crazy to talk about it any other way. There's something to be seen in the psychology of compensation and the psychology of coping and the psychology of adjustment and the choices that we're making as a culture. Attacking the meritocracy, true. And look, I was raised in a house by a guy who had a huge chip on his shoulder. My father, he told a joke at the end of his life. One of the last funny things I remember my father saying, was he read a piece about me on television and how I look like a soap opera actor and this is white privilege, you know, right here. This guy being on TV is white privilege. And my father went, hot damn, we made it, we're white. And, you know, he <laughs> meant it, you know, because he had always been the hot-blooded Italian, the swarthy ethnic with the gap-tooth grin and the circles under his eyes and the hot temper, mercurial Mario. and. It really bothered him. And that's why he hated mob movies and hated these things. And my point is that he saw something aspirational. Uh, he wanted to be more. He wanted to make the grade. He wanted to be accepted. He wanted to achieve. He wanted to succeed. And he wanted to help others. Now what I see in our culture is attacking what you call the meritocracy. It's not just the standard. It's that there shouldn't be a standard. That everything that is good or is now called elite and that must come down. And I don't see enough positive 
reinforcement of any ideal or value or anything. All I see is just attacks. And in my business, in politics, in the culture around us, it's all about a rage factory. You know, what someone's really angry about. Like right now, they're really angry about the royals. They're really angry about Harry and Meghan and what it had started with some type of window into a racial dynamic, you know, in the royal thing is now just a rage machine. We always wind up at rage, Phil. Why? Two things. One, I think we're getting programmed for that. And I'm going to sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist <laughs> with this, but I've been doing a lot of research into the algorithms that are feeding people stuff on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you, there is reliable evidence that these algorithms do not feed people what they want to see. It feeds people what energizes them emotionally. If there is content that pisses you off and sends you down the rabbit hole, that's what the algorithm is going to feed you because you will click on it more and go down the rabbit hole. If you like to see kittens playing and dogs playing and that sort of thing, it's going to send you some of that. But if it really pisses you off to see animals being abused or neglected, it's going to feed you a lot of that too, because that's going to get you upset. And it feeds you things that get you emotionally upset, emotionally energized. And if you have a certain mindset that you're emotionally charged about. You might have had that idea sitting on the fence on a farm in Iowa 20 years ago. Now you're on the internet where that gets oxygenated by other people who think that way. And so now it starts to build. And I think that's the reason a lot of these movements get life. I think we get upset in part by what we're being fed. And I think we get upset because of envy. Look, it's the haves versus the have-nots. And that's been the case for thousands and thousands of years. If you're going to be honest, you're going to have to acknowledge that and recognize that you know, envy's a real strong force in people. As I say, it's as far back as, as biblical times. And people get upset when they see people succeeding. You know, there's something in psychology called leveling. People that are insecure tend to level, and they do it two ways. They either do it by pounding their own chest and puffing themselves up or shooting at the other person's uh, reputation or accomplishments to bring them down to their level. But they're always trying to level things out instead of celebrating someone's success and being happy. You know, anytime somebody launches a new show in daytime or whatever competition with me, I always send them flowers or balloons or something and say, hey, congratulations on your launch. I wish you well. Welcome. Jump in. The water's fine. There's room for it. I've always sent somebody a congratulatory thing on their launch day and wish them well. And people look at me like I'm crazy for doing that. You're welcoming your competition? Well, of course. No matter how big my rating is, there's 360 million people in America. I'm going to speak to an infinitesimal part of them. I mean, come on. There's so many people out there. It's not going to make any difference. It's rare, though. I guess my concern is, you know, you, you have your philosophy and your intellectual construct and your faith. I totally get the intelligence of what now passes for criticism, which is almost exclusively negativity as a proxy for insight. 
You can't say something nice about somebody that's seen as weakness or a puff piece. Um, but I do worry that where are the positive influences? Where, where is the leadership that isn't motivating rage and anger, but that is motivating virtue? You know, people want to say this is a Christian country in its formation. We do not practice a lot of WWJD. You know, I can't <laughs> no, tell don't. you how many bios on social media say Christian and they are killing me in a very uh, in a in a very uh, unchristian way. So, ha where's the balance, Phil? We were talking yesterday. Uh, I shot a show yesterday about the impact of the internet with influencers that stage their reality using filters and people that rent these fuselages for 15 minutes and change clothes six times, like skiing and Tahiti, and people compare themselves to that and, and, and feel worse. You've got to compare yourself to yourself and not to others because you don't know how real other people are. And I was asking people, do you post hate messages? I was asking the audience. And surprisingly, a lot of people admitted it. They raised their hands. And I, I called this one woman, and I said, and she was so sweet and so funny. I said, "You post hate messages? You talk shit on the internet <laughs> to people?" She said, "Yeah, mostly just celebrities like you." And I said, "Well, I, I, I'm not a celebrity, but if you've gone on and talked trash to me," she said, "No, not you, but I, I, I do a lot of people." And I said, "Why?" Well, well, I never thought they really read it. I was just venting because I've been so angry. And so she goes on and talks trash to people and says she, you know, she hates them, go kill yourself, you're ugly, you're horrible, nobody likes you. And I said, why do you do that? She said, oh, it has nothing to do with them. I'm just angry, so I just go on there and vent. And I'm like, I couldn't believe she's saying this on national television. And she said, I don't do it anymore, but I used to. I said, well, how recently? Well, you know, a couple of weeks. <laughs> I couldn't believe she, she was so cute and funny, but she just spewing out all this vitriol on the internet. Who does that? Get a life. I mean, who sits down and writes a, a host or a TV show? I mean, come on. I'm telling you, they do it. And I'll tell you the mistake. I wasn't part of this, but I remember, I remember not the day, but I remember the period when the media started to look at comments on social media as Vox right. Populi. And yeah. there had always been this big debate in the media about man on the street interviews. And it was like, you know, what are you talking to that guy for? He doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. You're just trying to get a provocative soundbite out of him. He doesn't understand this policy, whatever it is. And unless we're talking about how it affects them, and it would always be this big debate. You know what I mean? How much of it should you use it? Is it really valuable? I was always kind of against it because I didn't want to put people in a position where they were outside their comfort zone. And then social media happened. And I remember the day I got a phone call at work. It was still a phone call. It wasn't a text. It wasn't on my cell phone. It was like a real phone. And they said, hey, listen, you said on the show yesterday morning that this guy was a mouth breather. And I said, uh, oh, yeah, 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 okay, right. Well, a lot of people uh, on Twitter not happy about it. Uh, it turns out that there's a, a specific breathing abnormality where people have to breathe out of their mouths. Oh, my and God. And they take offense to you calling someone a mouth breather. And 
I said, huh, well, that's funny. And I was, no, it's not funny. You've got to apologize. I said, well, there's no way I'm going to apologize on the show because if you show weakness on television, your competition is your critic base. They will kill me with this and it'll become a huge deal. I said, how many people are we talking about? 50. There had been 50 responses to one tweet and they wanted me to go on and apologize. And more stupid, more ridiculous, more absurd is I did as I went on the next day and I said, <laughs> but I remember the moment and be like, wow, this is so stupid what I'm doing right now. And it's so counterproductive. And I'm not, you know, there's no way for me to use this to do anything good other than to just take a beating. And sure enough, I went on, I said, look, I said, mouth breather, there's this group and the thing in the mouth and the breathing. So I didn't mean to offend you with that. I'll find another insult for people who uh, look stupid. And I got beat up for days after. And it wasn't about what happened to me. It happened and it was gone, which is a different part of the lesson. The rage is so ephemeral that if you could just shut up and hide, it disappears because it's usually without basis or, or real cause. But I remember that. And now in the media, if I can get 150 people talking about Dr. Phil's show, 150, right? You could have had 7 million people watch it. Forget about uh, secondary viewership and everything else. I'll get a reporter who will call you and say, hey, people are really upset about the whole blue on blue on blue thing, Phil. You know, there are people who have monochromatic eyes uh, and they, all they're seeing is like waves of you. It's freaking them out. You should apologize. There's no question about it. I, I did a show called You Can't Say That and, and put up all the things that are on the don't say list. And I got 57 feet of laser screens wrapping my stage, and I, could, I, I didn't have room for the stuff you, you can't say. And it probably changed before the end of the show. My problem with it is this, and I just don't know the solution. And, and that's why I love having people like you in our culture, because, you know, you're talking about problems in a, in a constructive way. And I really think that that is um, the last bastion of holding on to getting better. I know what the problem is. I see it all the time. I, I choose not to be a part of it on a regular basis now in different cycles of, of politics. I see where the story's going and I go a different way because I can, because that's uh, what News Nation does. But we go after people and we cancel them and we attack them because it's currency. If I find out something bad about you, I will get great placement everywhere with it and it will go viral. If I say, yep. hey, you know, I just had uh, Dr. Phil on my podcast. I love this guy, man. It was so great. I got to introduce my daughter to him. I love that he's trying to make people better in our society. It's great. Lives and dies with me. A good story doesn't, doesn't move. You've heard the quote that a lie travels six times faster than the truth. There's actually a study, I think it's out of um, England, where they actually did a, a a tracing of that and found out that that is actually true. There is basis for that statement. You know, Mark Twain said, a lie travels around the world while the truth is lacing up its shoes. And that's really true. And they broke it down. And the analysis was that a lie is so much cleaner and it's, it's simpler and it's easier to repeat because for something to be true, it's got nuances. And to be true, it has to have details and qualifiers and stuff. But a lie, 
you can just say, bang, 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 and you can pick it up, repeat it, send it out, and it's sensational, and it's novel, and so it gets picked up and sent around, and it's crazy how you can take control of the narrative in the court of public opinion with a lie so much faster, and nobody ever comes back behind and says, hey, I was one of the people that repeated that. It was wrong. I'm sorry. I correct that. Never happens. No, because you're a dead man. Uh, if you do, which takes in my last question for you, because I know how busy you are. What is the best expectation for us getting better? What has to happen? What do we need to see more of? I, I work with law enforcement a lot because I really support law enforcement across the board. Doesn't mean they don't make bad mistakes. They do. Uh, there are bad law enforcement officers that are badge heavy and should never have been out there. But in the main, I support them greatly, uh, FBI, local, regional. And I was speaking at a law enforcement conference earlier, and we were talking about negotiation. And one of the top negotiators for the FBI has said that they never, ever get anybody to release hostages unless and until the hostage taker believes the negotiator gets why they took those hostages to begin with. Doesn't matter anything else, but once they feel like they've been heard, I think this, this negotiator gets why I took these hostages. Then they've got something to work with. They have a face-saving way out. I've been heard. And I've listened to that, and I've, I've taught that, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I think we need to be better active listeners. I think we need to make our people that we're at odds with, that we're divided with politically, value-wise, culturally, we need to make sure that that person understands, hey, I hear you. I'm not telling you I agree with you, but I've taken the time to really hear you and understand you. So you don't ever need to tell me again because I hear you and I understand you. I think people are frustrated because they don't feel like they're being heard. I really thought back to the fact that I've always said when I was doing marital therapy, you don't need to win. You just need to make sure you've been heard, and that relieves the tension from it. And I, I really think that generalizes to we're so busy talking that we're not doing any listening. And I think that's a real big deal right now. Everybody's talking, ain't nobody listening. Amen to that, Dr. Phil. Thank you for being the example. Thank you for, uh, you know, you're one of the rare ones who— you're better with time because the more life you have, the more experience you have, the better you are at listening to people and giving out advice and helping us deal with all the crazy that's around us. Well, I don't know that time's helping. I, I can remember my address in the fourth grade, but I'm not sure I can remember why I went in the kitchen this morning. <laughs> that's okay. As long as you've you got a great ability to listen to other people and help process their pain and what they're dealing with and point them in a better direction. And that's, that's a gift. Uh, it's a gift to all of us. So continued success to you. I'm always a call away if I can help with anything. Very proud that you asked me to be on. And uh, you, you have to reciprocate and be on uh, my show and or fill in the blank soon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it in. Whatever you want. I'm a call away. I never forget who helps me. Take care, Dr. Phil. 
really interesting guy uh, who's doing really important work. And I hope he helped you understand a little bit better the dynamic around us and what we can do about it. Because I got to tell you, that has become all-consuming for me. We've got to get better. We've got to get to a better place. It can't be like this all the time. We have too many blessings. We have too many opportunities. It's too easy for us to just be this negative about everything. We can absolutely do better. I know we can, individually and collectively. So subscribe, follow. Don't forget that free agent merch. Wear your independence, literally and figuratively. I'll see you next time.